Okay, it's far heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again just for another day. Just to be here and be alive by your grace and have another opportunity to worship you uh, by faith and not by sight. We thank you for this privilege and the chance to glorify you and glorify your name. Father, most of all, we are eternally grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent for us to once and for all be the ultimate sacrifice to take away our sins once for all. We thank you so much that he paid our debt for us and through repentance and faith in him, we're born again and saved. Father, we ask that you bless this time right now in your word. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help us all be humble before you right now, listening to your spirit and your word. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay. The Lord is our confidence, part 20. I love God because he can be trusted. That was something I was, that was kind of, you know, out of nowhere on my drive-in tonight. That I love God because he can be trusted. And our, our, you know, subject, the Lord is our confidence, right? Why is he our confidence? Well, one of the reasons is he can be trusted. He's a man of his word and he's perfect, with perfect integrity. So we know he loves us. Just look at the cross. And we know he can be trusted because of who he is. So just think about that, I guess, as we start tonight. Um, the Spirit wanted me to kind of start off that way. That the reason we love God is because he can be trusted, because he's good. Nobody loves God because, you know, we're good or smart enough to love him. We love because he first loved us. And we love him because we know he can be trusted. So, we've seen recently that Jesus had no problem challenging his disciples with difficult sayings, as in John chapter 6. And in fact, many of them stopped following him because of it. So, ask yourself this, if Jesus wanted followers, which he did, he wanted people to believe in him and follow him. If he wanted followers, why did he give them such difficult things to consider? Would have been a lot easier, quote-unquote, to just say, eh, don't worry about the details. Don't worry about your motivation. Why are you following me? Just come along. Like, uh, you know, kind of like a worldly televangelist might do these days who's after money or something. One reason the Lord said difficult things was to test them to see if they were following him for the right reasons. And God knows he's tested us in this church quite a bit the last few years, um, and he still is, to examine ourselves. To see if we really want to know him or just receive the things that he offers. Um, you know, 
Jesus was not walking around trying to collect numbers. He wasn't trying to have the biggest ministry. All right, or be the greatest Messiah of all the false messiahs by numbers. It's all about the heart with God. If the heart's not there, I don't want or need the numbers, God would say. This has to be right. So as we've also learned, an unchallenged sheep is one who doesn't grow. And when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, it was a relative statement. In other words, his yoke is easy compared to the horrible treadmill we put ourselves on in religion, in futility trying to earn our own way with God. His yoke is much easier than that. Our most recent blog challenged us to look at grace the right way. And many people think because God's grace is offered to man, that the journey of man to receive grace is easy. All right, let me just say that again. Many people think because God's grace is offered to man, freely offered it is, that the journey of man to receive grace will be easy. But it's simply not easy for man because of all the baggage he carries in his soul. Even many things that those of us have been in the Word of God for years, that many things we still carry that we don't even see yet. And that's where we can tend to get a little bit arrogant and think we've hoisted most of the baggage overboard when there's probably like another whole room full of bags up to the ceiling. So we mustn't ever get arrogant to think that we don't have these things in the way. That God is still flushing out things for us. And he o- they only come out by humility. So it's just not easy for man because of the baggage that he carries around. And the point is, regarding grace, and as Pastor said on Sunday, don't miss it on the board, from the blog of 8.9.19 on Grace Works and Indifference, a convicted person is forced to exert themselves. The gospel demands it. This is something to really think about. This work is in the struggle either to cast aside the sinful pride of life and pursue salvation, like repent and believe, right? Or to reject the gospel. Or even to remain indifferent to it. Even giving the impression that you don't reject the gospel. There's a lot of people out there like that. Do you believe in Christ? Yeah, I believe. I guess so. That doesn't sound like someone that has realized he's been saved from his sin by God himself, right? So where's that person at with salvation? Are they in the place of indifference? Are they putting on a facade to fit in? Did they ultimately reject the gospel? Striving, a la Luke 13, 24, in one direction or the other, doesn't increase or diminish the value of the cross in any way. In other words, that grace is there to behold and to receive, no matter what. That work on the cross was finished. So there's still the battle that man goes through in honestly receiving the gospel or rejecting it, even if it's just by indifference. So man will strive. 
he will struggle with the truth because the flesh is fighting against his surrender to it. I want to share with you something we covered during the Gospel Reload a few years ago. And it's about the fact that hundreds of years ago, our forefathers in America made some helpful distinctions in the area of conversion and how it was a process and how to, how to view people at different stages rather than assume things about their salvation even. So first of all, they called an unbeliever who had no signs of being receptive a sleeping sinner. That's a pretty easy one, right? I mean, the guy really doesn't care. The girl really doesn't care about God right now at all. So a sleeping sinner makes sense. When they saw someone starting to respond to the spirits working on them, and they were starting to listen and learn, they called them seeking sinners or awakened but they didn't assume they were saved or born again. They did not assume that. It was a good thing to see. They started coming to church. They were seeking. But what's the sign or what's the evidence that someone is saved? They would look out then for a true positive response towards Christ's work on their own personal behalf, such as a personal conviction of their own sinfulness, and then active call on Christ to be saved, which would result in the sinner willingly exercising repentance and faith. So I think we've learned that recently, to not assume somebody's saved just because they're coming to church, let's say. Maybe they are seeking, but maybe they haven't surrendered yet, for lack of a better word. So why did they see the conversion process this way? Why did the, you know, forefathers of our country, many of them very spiritual, very biblical, why did they see the conversion process this way? Because they knew it was difficult for man to truly come to Christ, depending on the baggage he refused to drop in favor of the grace of God alone. You see, it's, it's trusting in self or it's trusting in Christ. We've been through this, but the word alone is important. If you're still trusting in self, you haven't trusted in Christ alone. And that's where the conversion process might be stagnated for a while. Man's struggle is getting self out of the way. And it might take a lifetime before he's willing to rightly surrender to the Lord and raise the white flag in humility by grace through faith. Truly receiving the grace of God. Pastor shared his great fear in contemporary Christianity is that people have bought an insidious lie regarding grace. So we know grace, you know, if we, if we really had to narrow down a definition, a really good definition is the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited favor of God. Praise God for that. Truly awesome we can't add a thing to it. However, many have used this wonderful truth to assume an attitude of laziness with God. And they've used grace basically as an excuse to live the way they want. So in other words, 
they don't really want God. What they want is God plus their self-life. They want God just in case. But they want God plus their self-life. They've become familiar with and taken advantage of grace. And they've almost taken grace out of context, if you want to think of it that way. They've become familiar with and taken advantage of grace. They've, they've perverted it to fit their comfort zone. And many people have slapped their own definition on grace to make it suit their needs and to enable them to continue a lifestyle they just don't want to give up. And it's really a shame, uh, just like familiarity is a shame. And it ruins the goodness of God in our lives. But everybody's got their free will, and they either seek the tr truth and humility and be set free by the true grace of God, or they don't. They pervert it, they twist it, and they hang on to self. They still trust in self. So we had a news flash come up on Sunday, this just in. It's okay, you can laugh, it's all right. That was funny. Uh, God's grace has boundary conditions to it. Nobody wants to hear this. In Christianity today, nobody wants to hear this. It's all, um, it's all like a free stuff mentality. It's all like, um, it's almost like an anything goes mentality. And it goes back to licentiousness, the flesh getting involved in defining grace. But James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. A lot of Christians out there want to say, God give, gives grace to everybody. And listen, he does to a certain degree. He lets you live, right? He lets everybody breathe, right? He lets the rain and the sun shine on them and fall on them, believer or unbeliever. But they want to say God gives grace to everyone, in, in terms of salvation even. When the Bible says God gives grace to the humble. The Bible dogmatically teaches that it's God's sovereign decision whom he bestows grace on. He's the molder, right? With a clay. And being that God sees the heart, he's righteous in every decision to bestow grace upon the humble. Because he knows who's humble and who's not. He knows the heart. So he's righteous in every decision, his sovereign decision, to bestow grace upon the humble. So in other words, in other words, um, someone can't talk God into the fact that they're humble. It's like a Christian saying in an arrogant way, no, I'm humble. Lord, you've got to give me this now. And that's like an oxymoron. That, that doesn't make any sense. He's righteous. He knows who's humble or humbled before him, and he bestows grace on who he wants. You can't buy it. You can't talk God into it. You can't try to fool him, obviously. And we see this in John chapter 6. People wanted salvation their way on their terms. So again, continued newsflash. Grace is God's to give, and he doesn't give it to everyone, especially those that don't really want it. In other words, those that choose to stay in arrogance. 
Again, grace is God's to give. It's his monopoly. It's his choice. And he doesn't give it to everyone, especially those that don't really want it. There will be people that act like they want it, that try to fit in the mold, that try to look like a follower to gain the benefits, but they don't really want it, and God's not going to give it because he sees the heart. Some of the disciples in John 6 actually stopped following Jesus because, in effect, they didn't think they needed God's grace. In the end, that's what it comes down to. They said, when they walked away from Jesus, they said, I'll find another way to satisfy God. He's telling me this is the only way. But I'll find another way. In other words, I'll satisfy self in the process. Whereas Peter rightly said, where else can we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. In other words, your grace. You are grace. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to find this grace to save wretches like ourselves? Grace, because of man's arrogance, is just not easy for man to receive. That's why people walked away. You've heard people say about salvation, it sounds too easy. Have you ever heard that from somebody? When you, when you tell them about grace and by faith and it's not by works so no man can boast? Oh, it sounds too easy. What are they really saying? Why are they saying that? Because man wants a part in it. Their flesh wants a part in it. That's why grace is difficult to accept. One reason why grace is difficult to accept. It's not easy for man to receive. Comes back to pride once again. As Pastor proposed on Sunday, if grace were as easy as contemporary Christianity suggests, why hasn't everyone who's heard the gospel for the first time believed? If it was, quote-unquote, easy for man to receive. Why hasn't everyone believed the minute they heard the good news? Because it's a struggle against pride. You know, when we go to the parks and... Um, you know, a few of us are still going here or there, and uh, we've had some really good conversations lately with some people. But people will walk away, and not everyone believes. Even if you, you know, give the, the best, in your opinion, you know, the best, clearest explanation of the gospel, people will not accept it right away easily. They won't jump on board the train like, you know, from our viewpoint now, you'd think you should, right? Why is it? Because there's a wrestling match going on in the soul. And if you don't understand what that means, read the blog from last week on grace, works, and indifference. There's a striving going on according to Jesus. So again, let's turn in our Bibles to John 6, verse 60. John 6, 60. <clears throat> We're not going to read the whole passage, but we're going to read uh, parts of it just kind of for review and to make a couple of points. John 6, 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? As we saw, this was after Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So people here, in their arrogance, don't want to hear it, or they don't want to hear that it must be granted by the Father. They don't want to hear that. Why? Isn't that just simply unsubmissiveness? An unwillingness to submit? They didn't want to hear it. it had to be granted by the Father. They walked away. This is a rejection of God's grace and that he alone is the sovereign. What do you mean it has to be God's way and by God's calling? They might have been saying in their hearts, I want grace and I want it now. I'm a good person. I want it on my terms. In effect, they say, I believe I'm worthy of grace, which absolutely makes no sense because why would you need grace if you're worthy? But that's what they're saying. I mean, um, you, a lot of us can relate from our past, from our own struggle towards salvation, um, our struggle with religious thinking and dropping certain things to truly trust in Christ alone instead of a remnant of ourself and our, our own abilities, our own perceived goodness which is really just disgusting, as we know. So we're talking about, on the board, being confronted by the truth. Difficult messages bring people to a point where they have to decide if they want God's truth or not. And that, my friends, is a picture of grace. For the unbeliever, are you willing to do it God's way? For the believer, are you willing to go forward admitting you don't understand everything? And are you willing to grow? Again, on the board, confronted by the truth, difficult messages bring people to a point where they have to decide if they want God's truth or not. God's doing this to us every single day. He's testing our hearts every single day, at least in a small way. Do you want God's truth or not? Or are you complacent? Do you think you already know it all? As the Spirit has given us, difficult messages force us to face our convictions, stimulating growth in us. And when confronted by the truth, some people run away and some people stay. And there's even indifference expressed by some who will say with their lips they accept it, but will go on to live their own lives. And that's a testimony against them and evidence against their casual acceptance of truth, which really isn't one. And again, there's indifference expressed by some who will say with their lips they accept it or accept him, 
but they'll go on to live their own lives. There's no need to alter anything I'm doing, even the sinful parts. Jesus challenged his disciples because he didn't want them deceiving themselves. This came out on Sunday. He didn't want them deceiving themselves. He didn't want them following him, thinking they were right when they were wrong. He didn't want them following him for the wrong reasons and giving them the false impression that they're born again, which happens in a lot of churches now, Christian churches. For example, earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus asked them if they were following him because of the bread he fed them. Is that why you're following me? Is it the food? See, like only someone that loves you and has faith, obviously Jesus had both in spades, right? Only someone that loves you and has faith is going gonna, is gonna to ask a question like that, which is, you know, perceived as insulting. Are you following me for the food? Imagine if you said someone that, uh, that to someone outside the church. Are you following me because you want money? Yeah, they might punch you in the nose. Who knows? So Jesus didn't care, though. He's like, listen, I love you enough to tell you the truth, to say, examine your motivation right now. You're giving the impression that you love me, but I know some of you don't. I know some of you don't believe. I know you're here because of the food I fed you. So go back to John 6, verse 22. You're already in John 6, I think, right? John 6, 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. It's almost like they were waiting in the same spot. The bread spot. Do you have one of these in your life? There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do? so that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. But notice in verse 26, Jesus called them out. He even started with truly, truly. As we know, it's very solemn and serious. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It was then, after verse 29, that Jesus started his hard sayings, his difficult sayings about his flesh and blood. 
So Jesus didn't want anyone going to their grave deceived. And neither should we, which is why we must tell the truth in love when given the opportunity. We have to stop living in fear, everybody. I know we all do it because I do it. And I have the gift of evangelist. And I do it. I live in fear sometimes of telling someone the whole truth, depending on the situation, the circumstance, right? I mean, Peter didn't want to deny Christ, did he? He's like, I'll never deny you. But the situation and the circumstances and the pressure of that little dynamic, the night Christ was captured, got to him, which it can get to any of us. But we have to stop living in fear. We have to stop caring what people think about us. We do it way too much. And that is stopping us from telling the truth in love and possibly bringing people to Christ. So we have to accept personally the point on the board that love takes risks. You might claim to have the love of Christ, but it's not evident in your actions because you're unwilling to take a risk that might hurt self. Love takes risks. Jesus preferred to offend people with the truth rather than coddle them with a lie. For example, John 6. On Sunday, we were asked, how do you respond to this type of love? How does your soul respond to this type of love? Is this good or evil? And if you say it's good, do you live in this honest type of love yourself? Or do you live in evil, not telling the whole truth out of self-preservation? Not telling the whole truth out of self-preservation. That's obviously not love. That's selfishness. That's love of self. On Sunday, we were challenged. Have you passively lied or omitted the truth when a friend or family member brought up God or the gospel? I can think of probably dozens of times in the last 20 years. Have you passively lied or omitted the truth when a friend or family member brought up God or the gospel because you wanted to soften it or you didn't want to seem extreme and them to call you a nut so you didn't tell them flat out the whole truth? Have you not wanted to offend people, therefore hating them in effect? And hating might sound like a strong word, but you didn't love them in that moment. We're all guilty of this, operating out of fear sometimes instead of out of faith. Operating out of fear of rejection, which is really selfishness. Because we want to be loved by everyone. We don't want to make enemies. We don't want people sneering at us, talking about us behind our back. But Jesus said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to love and take risks, because that's what love does. So on Sunday, we talked about the evil of avoiding the truth on the board. If you say to a person, hey, I never lied to you, I just never told you the truth, that's a passive lie a satanic device used to skirt the real issue, whatever it may be, but especially horrible when it's regarding the gospel truth. It's evil to avoid telling the truth out of personal fear.
fear. Eternal life is on the line for many people, maybe more people than we think. We must put ourselves aside by faith and be there with the truth for others while we still have time. In other words, be there. Stand firm. When that little opportunity comes up and that maybe little uncomfortable situation with different dynamics of people around you and fear starts to set in, say a quick prayer for more faith and be there. Stand up. Be willing to tell the truth in love. A true friend tells the truth as we know, even if it's offensive. And if we tell the truth in love, if we tell the truth in love, we avoid being rude or arrogant in the process. You might even need to tell people, listen, I'm about to say something that you might not like right now, but I'm, I want to let you know I'm telling you this because I care about you. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Make it crystal clear that you're doing it out of love. And even if they don't understand you know, what you said, at least they know that you care about them even if it offends them. So again, on the board, love takes risks. This is a repeat point, which is a pretty important one for all of us to digest. A good friend takes the risk of offending someone they love for their friend's sake. For their friend's sake, to save their friend. It might be literal salvation. It might be deliverance from a bad way of thinking they're in. But if you really love your friend, you want to save them. Right? <laughs> what was I just thinking of? You know, when you save a drowning person and they're, they're, fight, they're basically fighting back and trying to pull you under the water, right? You see in the movies someone punches the guy in the face so the guy will stop kicking him so he can drag him to safety. You might have to punch someone in the face to drag him to safety. And, of course, we're talking about with words here. Don't get carried away. Don't use grace as a license to sin. But seriously, you might have to punch someone in the face with your words, Make sure they know it's out of love. But this is going to sting. And it's, I'm doing this because I want to save you from something you don't see right now. So, again, on the board. So, I have, I, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? You might say that to a friend of yours that you share it with. In Galatians 4.16 and in 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Listen, we live in a very difficult time in this country. In our PC society, we can certainly expect to be loved less for being honest with people. We're sometimes going to be hated for being honest with people because the society is so lopsided now, so politically correct, that everybody's hypersensitive, as we know. So it's even more of a challenge to walk by faith and not give in to fear. Expect, see, if you, isn't, it, isn't life easy when you expect certain things coming, right? You don't have unrealistic expectations. If you expect to be loved less, if you accept that now before the confrontation or the situation or the opportunity, if you accept that now, you're going to handle it by faith. But that's why we're here. That's why we're in Bible class. That's why we're learning the word. To accept these things now. To receive them. To believe them. So that when we go out there, we're equipped. And we're not going to run away, you know, like a chicken at the little slightest sign of, you know, 
reaction. So again, just make sure the people you're speaking with know you're telling them the truth out of love. What they do with it is up to them. But ask yourselves, are we here on earth to win friends or to win souls? Why are we alive right now in God's grand scheme of things? Why are you still alive? Are you here to win friends or to win souls? We each have a decision to make in that area. Which one are we living for? What do we have our heart set on? Is your heart set on making friends and pleasing everybody? Or is your heart set on winning souls? Are we here to be people pleasers or God pleasers? If the latter, if you claim the latter, then you will also save some souls in the process by the grace of God. And even though you share the gospel in love in front of four people, maybe only one will follow. Join the club. Join Jesus' club. Join the Apostles' club. But you might just save a couple souls because you're honest and loving. Proverbs 11.30 on the board. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. The fruit. Notice we're talking about the fruit. What's the fruit of the righteous? A tree of life. How about eternal life? How about sharing eternal life with someone else? It's simply because man is disoriented to truth that he rejects it. It's his own, again, baggage. He's messed up in the head, we might say. He's brainwashed by the world and his own sinful nature. So he struggles and strives against the truth. Whether at the moment of salvation or with spiritual truths that he's challenged with as a believer. So on the board, we saw this on uh, Sunday, love and pain, love and pain. If an expression of a pure love causes you pain, do not make the grave mistake of blaming the one loving you. The pain is fruit of your malignancy to truth. Freedom is available to those who receive the truth in gratitude. And the only ones that do that are those that choose to be humble. Choose to accept correction, for example, instead of react against it. Again, if an expression of pure love causes you pain, do not make the grave mistake of blaming the one you love. The pain is fruit of your malignancy with the truth. Freedom is available to those who receive the truth in gratitude. Turn again to John 8.31. John 8.31. Here we're going to see another boundary to God's grace being doled out to man. John 8.31 So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. On the board. Again, regarding love and pain. Continuing in the word requires persistence, even in the face of uncomfortable truths. If we seek him, 
If we seek Him and not His benefits alone, we will be set free by His truth over time. John 6 and John 8, 31 and 32. Continuing in the Word requires persistence even in the face of uncomfortable truths. It's that person, that humble person, that's willing to accept those hard sayings and not run away and keep seeking Him. It's that person that's going to be set free. We'll all be sanctified or set apart for Him, the truth making us free. So again, on the board, if an expression of a pure love causes you pain, do not make the great mistake of blaming the one loving you. The pain is fruit of your malignancy to the truth. We all still have it. We all still have it. We're, you know, there's areas in our souls where we're skewed. We're not looking at it rightly. Certain parts of the truth. Freedom is available to those who receive the truth in gratitude. So this is why we must walk by faith. And this came up on Sunday too. We have to walk by faith, not even by perception. Not even by what we think we see. We have to walk by faith. For example, we should humbly ask ourselves at each Bible class that we're so blessed to attend, what's the message the Spirit is trying to portray today? What's the message the Spirit is trying to portray today? I know the pastor loves God. I know he's here to do his job and he's not in it for himself. He, I, I trust that he's a man who just wants to communicate the truth to us. So with that in mind, what's the Spirit doing? What's the message he's trying to get across to, to us right now, to me right now? You might not like the personality of the person telling you the truth, but do you want to be told the truth or not? We mustn't make it personal, in other words. If we think someone is honestly telling the truth, it might be a pastor, it might be a friend. If we think someone's honestly telling you the truth out of love, we must humble ourselves and consider, maybe I don't have this all down pat when someone corrects us. We must humble ourselves and ask, what is the Spirit's message to us right now? And something else that came out on Sunday regarding this is do not allow your flesh to discern important things for you. Do not allow your flesh to discern important things for you. Walk by faith and not by sight. One of our problems in America that's distracted us terribly from receiving truth is what's become the new normal in this land we live in. 100 years ago, it was not normal to watch TV, for example. That was not normal. Forget about watching it for hours every day. The first electronic television was invented in 1927. And as late as 1947, only a few thousand Americans owned a TV. So, therefore, it was not normal to be a passive learner. It was not normal to go home and sit on the couch and receive stuff without being actively involved, like reading or examining or questioning or talking. Totally not normal. I wonder if they even knew what it meant to be a passive learner back then, before technology. 
In fact, it wasn't even really possible to be a passive learner because there was no real technology 100 years ago to enable them into passive learning. So nowadays, we might say our society is under a curse because of the new normal. This is new. I mean, it's not new to many of us because we grew up with TV. We never didn't have it, right? But in the big picture, this is very new. On the board, deceived by the new normal. Satan has used technology to create a bunch of lazy zombies, enslaved to the messages they sit back and listen to and receive with little or no examination. It's we, it's all of us, right? We're all, we've all been taken advantage of, let's just say, in this area, at least to some degree. And the big problem is sitting back and listening and receiving with little or no examination. So we become deceived by the messages that come from these technological advances, whether it's TV or movies or internet or whatever. So this is why, if you think about it, so many immoral lifestyles are now accepted as good today. Why are they accepted as good today? Not just tolerated, they're accepted as good. We've been persuaded by our own laziness, received and accepted a bunch of lies. We've bought them as well, after many years of slowly being deceived. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, we've been infected. It's in our society so prevalently that it's made its way into our hearts. It's not just, you know, objectively, overtly scattered throughout society. It has penetrated our hearts and our souls. Passive messages being eaten up like garbage. So on the board we have the disease. Passive culture demands, even expects others to meet its desires without question. We so expect to get everything we want right away nowadays, don't we? We're so spoiled. And it's just a passive culture that has created this phenomenon. So it takes even more uh, willingness or faith to kick against this. It takes even more of a uh, maybe dramatic decision, we might say, to say I'm not going to be a slave to this thing that's so embedded in our culture now and that it's so easy to just give in with and go with the flow. But this is what we're all called to, folks. We were all born in this generation. We weren't born in the last one or two or three ago before television. We were born in this one. So guess what? God says you can handle it. I, I knew you were going to go through this. This is for you. This is your faith challenge, if you will, one of them. As Pastor mentioned, it's like a lot of people who find out they have six months to live. We're talking about being infected by the disease, if you will, of passive culture. People find out they have six months to live, but they were infected for some time before that, before they found out. They just didn't know it. But while we're still alive, my friends, this is the good news. This is why God is so wonderful. You know, this is why we could say we love him, because we trust him and because he's always giving us a fresh opportunity in the morning. 
Lamentations 3. His grace is new and fresh every morning. So what does that mean? That means you could have failed miserably up to this point. Horribly. Like Saul of Tarsus. And tomorrow you can bring glory to God with your life. So if we're still alive, there are days to redeem. There are days to buy back. There are, there are days to make count in God's eyes. No matter how ugly and rebellious or passive we've been up to this point. So the question is, which way are we going to go going forward? Which way are you going to go going forward? Your priorities, the way you learn. How will you decide to learn from now on? Deuteronomy 30.19, New Living Translation. Today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like others are watching or observing, and we can bring glory to God by our actions in front of others. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. Many of us need to choose life. Not necessarily about salvation, if you're already saved, if you're already born again, but we need to choose life. We need to choose to live life. God's brand of life, if you will. Not American-style life. We need to snap out of it. We need to choose. Am I going to redeem the remaining days I have left or not? As came out in last week's blog, the truth never leaves a person unchanged. It's always going to bother you. By grace, it's going to bother you. Talk about not being easy, right? As Pastor was saying on Sunday, it kind of sticks to you, right? It hits you and it sticks to you. And you're like, ah, I can't get it off now. It's like a stain on your shirt. It's there. Truth always changes all of us somehow, some way. For example, once you hear it, once you hear the truth, whether it's the gospel or, or a, a difficult truth in Bible class, once you hear the truth, it's in your conscience. And now you have to make a choice with what, what you do with it. You have to do something with it. You can ignore it, but that's doing something, right? So by grace, it's not easy. By grace, God convicts us and helps us grow. One of the benefits of it not being easy. Have you ever said to someone, why did you tell me that? Or why did you show me that picture? And now it's stuck in your head. That's the problem, right? That's why you said, why did you tell me that? Now I can't get rid of it. Now I have to deal with it. Could be good or bad or ugly. But I have to deal with it. And that, by grace, is the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word. Good. If it's tough, if it's difficult on you, go pray more. Right? Go get on your knees, God says. Come ask me for more faith. You're confused? You're bothered by this? Good. Come closer. Come closer. Talk to me. Ask me. Beg me. The truth will set you free. 
So what the Spirit's saying tonight is let's choose to set ourselves up for spiritual deliverance and freedom. Like going forward. We can't do anything about yesterday. Let's choose to set ourselves up for spiritual deliverance and freedom. How do we do that? Pretty simple. I think you know the answer. Here's a key point the Spirit is repeating for us to deliver us on the board. Active learning. Examining the Scriptures daily has definite predictable results. Isn't that wonderful? Like, isn't that so, not freeing, but uh, securing? The security. If you do that thing, if you dive into the Scriptures on your own, there's definite predictable results. What are they? Peace, wisdom, contentment, happiness. It's, it's almost inescapable. And you reap what you sow in a good way. In the case of the Bereans, many of them believed. That was the result of their examining. Many of them believed. So how do you think you will ever truly believe God's word if you don't do the same? You won't. You'll be living on borrowed convictions, and when that little situation comes up where you have fear or have faith, you're going to have fear because you don't have your own convictions. The Spirit has been on us. But see, again, this is part of the reliability of God, why the Lord is our confidence. He gives us definite, predictable results every time if we do what He says, by grace. So it's not supposed to be easy. We have to get that idea out of our heads. God's grace empowers it all in us as we close. God's grace empowers it all in us. But we will all struggle at times due to the flesh and its misconceptions. And as we've seen, it's good. It's good that some things are hard to understand at first. Otherwise, how will we humbly consider things we don't yet know? If we're not challenged, how will we humbly consider things we don't yet know? We'll think we know everything. Basically, we'll be too complacent. How will we humbly consider things we don't yet know unless we're challenged? And how will we grow? And how will we be set free? We'll close with this, 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. I bet it's a command in the Greek. Grow, grow. Obviously, God causes the growth, but it's a decision. We're involved. We're involved. I am who I am by the grace of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen? All right, let's close. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your amazing grace toward us every single day. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that you're a man of your word, so to speak, that we can trust you wholly. And we're just so grateful for all you've done for us, starting with the cross. And we're grateful for this day to learn more about you, Father. Help us have the right attitude
Help us remain humble and help us choose life, Father, going forward. Your life, not the life of this world. We ask that you bless each one of us as we go. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.